right. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? All right. Well, it is, if you didn't know, maybe, I don't know whether you come from a tradition that celebrates Lent or not. Um, one thing I realized this week is that I say uh, Lent and Lent basically exactly the same. Um, so like pocket Lent and uh, the season of Lent, but they're not spelled the same and they are not the same thing. Um, but yeah, that was pointed out to me. Um, I, also, I also have a trouble with, with uh, a, like a berry, like a strawberry and, uh, and Barry, like the name Barry. I really have to think about that because I just want to say Barry and Barry. Um, so anyway, there's my English struggles for you. Um, but uh, yeah, it's the season of Lent. So for the next few weeks up until Easter, leading up until Easter, we're going to be in this series that we're calling Portraits of a Revolution. You'll be, look up there and you'll notice there are, uh, there is a, uh, well, it's not, I guess it's not technically a portrait, is it, right? Is that, am I not using my art words right there? Um, anyway, you'll notice there is, a, there is a work of art on the wall and it is an unfinished work of art. But that work of art will be continually and steadily completed until we come to Easter when it will be finally finished. So you can look forward every week to seeing a new, uh, new picture up there um, from, from Nick. And what you'll start to notice is there is a theme. There is actually a theme here. And, uh, and, and you'll see that the first one there uh, looks like a bunch of people walking. Um, maybe, you've, maybe you've guessed the theme. Can anybody guess our, our theme for today? What are we talking about? The Exodus. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Since we read, about the, we read the Exodus story. That's not like, it's one of those stories when you read it, you're like, oh man, like that's a, that's a heavy story. Yeah, it was kind of one of those, I'm like, should we read this? Should we not read it together as a church? But then I thought, every single year at Passover time, the Jews read this story. And they celebrate. Because it's, it's, it's a celebratory story about the victory of God over the powers and the forces of evil. All right? And so, this morning... That's where we're going to be. That's what we're going to be looking at. So the whole idea of this series, I we're calling it Portraits of a Revolution, is that the Bible talks about the crucifixion or what Jesus, what Jesus accomplished in his death and in his resurrection in, in many different ways. We tend to focus, I think, in the Western world on the idea of substitutionary atonement is what it's called. That's the big word. You probably didn't know it. That's what it was called. But that's the big word for it. And, and, and mainly it looks like this. It goes like this. I am a sinner. I need to be saved. Jesus died in my place and for my sin. Is that a, part, a key part of the gospel? Yes, 100%. Let's, let's just get that out of the way right now. That is a really, really important part of the gospel. But here's the thing. The Bible actually talks about what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection in other metaphors as well, in other ways of looking at it. It's not just as a substitute, which is one metaphor, and we will get there. That's like uh, week six, I think, or something like that. Um, we will get to talking about Jesus as a, a substitute. But there, what I want us to get in this series is that there are other metaphors. There are other ways that the Bible, whether it be Paul, whether it be Jesus, uh, whether it be the author of Hebrews, looks at what happened that day. Where the whole world was, was changed on that day. Because that's what the Bible believes. That the whole world, that's what the Bible teaches us. That the whole world, something changed the day that Jesus died. A revolution began the day that Jesus died. That the world has never been the same since. Right? And so the Bible talks about the big picture of this in so many different ways. And so what we want to do in this series is to begin to capture some of that picture. Are we going to get to the whole thing? No. Even there, there are entire books written about each one of these things that we're going to cover today. Am I going to preach to you an entire book? No, I will not do that to you uh, today. So even there, we're only going to scratch the surface probably of, of this metaphor because it is one that runs through the whole biblical story. So, as I said, the Bible uses many metaphors to describe our situation and to describe how Good Friday and Easter are the solution to our problem. But one of the big problems is that we don't actually sometimes know what the problem is. <laughs> right? So we know Jesus, you know, the Bible says, well, Jesus is a solution to the problem, but we don't always know what the problem is. And so we cannot really talk about the solution if we don't know the problem. And I think this is an issue in our world. I think most of us probably live with a very vague idea of what sin is. 
right? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus came to, right, save us from our sins, right? And so we don't, if we don't know what that means, then we're going to have a hard time actually grasping the bigness and incredibleness of what Jesus has done. So here's what I want to do. I broke out the whiteboard this morning, and there are no wrong answers. I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not prepared to start um, humiliating people um, from, the, you know, from up here um, this morning. Uh, it's just to say, let's talk about sin. If somebody were to come to you and ask you, what is sin? What would you tell them? All right, and this is meant to be a participatory exercise. We're going to work through it, and hopefully we'll get, I'm not, I'm not going to spend like the whole time on this, but, but yeah, I, I'd just be curious what you guys, what you guys think. Disobedience, to God. disobedience, sure, yeah. Jeez, now I have to spell disobedience. <laughs> be naughty. Hopefully I got that right. Okay, think so? It's like a spelling bee for me now. Okay, what have I done to myself? Yeah, anybody else anything besides disobedience? Missing the mark. Missing the mark? Yeah, okay. Missing the mark of what? Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. What? Okay, yeah. Perfection, righteousness, being like Jesus, all those things, yeah. Yeah, we'll break out the other mark right now. Anybody else? Any thoughts? Setting something higher than God in your life. Yeah. Putting something before God. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Separation. So sin is separation. Sin separates us from God. Yeah. Mm, where do I want to put this in my thing? Yeah. I'm not doing anything. Don't worry. Okay. Sorry. What was that, Ola? Rebellion. Yeah. All right, going once, going twice. Not believing when you be God and of God, Jesus Christ. So not believing in Jesus? Yeah. That would be, okay, okay. Uh, let's see. Can I just say unbelief? I before E except after C, right? That's okay. Uh, unbelief. All right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say... Uh, yeah. Law breaking. All right. So, law breaking. Idolatry. And Bear with me on this one. I'm just going to write force. Sin, the way, and, I, and I'm using very broad categories here, but the way the Bible talks about what sin is, I think we tend to focus on these ones. We've all been taught sin is doing bad things. Like when I, I, I um, asked a child this morning what is, what, how they would define sin, it was doing, doing the wrong thing. It was you know, disobeying God. Right? Okay? So, like, look, and I think that is 100% a correct, correct thing. Missing the mark is actually a word um, used for, uh, used about, um, one of the words the Bible uses for sin. It actually can be translated missing, missing the mark. Um, and so law-breaking is one of the primary, is one of the ways that the Bible talks about sin. Idolatry is another one, and we hit, we hit that. The idea of putting something before God. Um, I would say unbelief falls into that because you, you, nobody believes in nothing. Right, we're all we're all following something, moving towards something, even if that something is we believe nothing. Um, right. So anyway, we won't we won't spend in circles there. But um, right. So so in a way, I think even unbelief points to idolatry because we're putting our faith in something else besides besides Jesus. And sin, 
this is one of the ways I think we, we don't talk enough about, probably, is the idea that sin in the Bible is seen as a, as a force, right? As a, as a systemic force of evil in this world, right? And I think actually even just the idea of when the Bible starts talking about, like when Paul starts talking about um, Satan being the prince of this world or that Jesus was victorious over the prince of the powers of the air of this world, right? right? That there is a, an evil at work in this world that is more than just us choosing to worship something else. It's more than just breaking the law, but there's actually a force of evil, a force of sin at work in the world pressing in and upon us. And that separates us from God. Now, you could probably put those in, in any one of those categories, but that, I chose to do that because I think that is when we read about the evil one in this world or Satan, what does he, what does he want to do? Separate us from God. There is, a, there is literally evil forces right? Law-breaking fits in really well, really nicely with our, with our sort of rationalistic world because then we can set it and say, well, it's going against the rules. It's breaking the rules. This one is a lot harder for us because we want to explain everything away. <laughs> but that there is an evil, there is true malevolent evil at work in the systems of, of this world, right? Okay? And that really, this one right here is actually probably the one we're going to focus most on this morning, is the idea of sin as a force. Now, I will say, just, just briefly, because I think it's good to set the foundation. Every week we're going to be talking about a different aspect of, of sin in this, in this category. But just to kind of briefly say a couple more things about these. So the idea of sin of, as, as law-breaking assumes that there is some sort of moral foundation, some sort of moral code, and we break it. So even there, I think our secular world even sees this as a concept of sin, right? That there is a, I mean, all you have to do is be on social media for a little while to say, if you say the wrong thing, <laughs> you have committed a pretty bad sin, um, right? And there are some truly horrible things that people say on the internet, but there's also, I mean, we could go on about how, you know, people getting older like me, talking about cancel culture and all this kind of stuff, right? We could talk about that, like that there is, um, that there is even in our world, I think, a concept, a secular concept of sin that has to do with, with law-breaking. But here's the problem. More and more, our culture is one that is, is suffering from deep anxiety. Deep anxiety. And I think one of the problems is that we want, we want this concept of sin to say that there are things that are bad, but we've completely eroded any moral, formation, any moral foundation and said, well, you can believe whatever you want. So now we struggle in the sea of, of ambiguity drowning, going, I don't actually know what's right, what's wrong. There's no real, there's no real moral foundation, yet there's some, some random, you know, people are defining sin all the time for, their own, for themselves, whatever. Anyway, that's for free. Um, and then, and of course, idolatry. Idolatry, putting anything before, before God. It's replacing God with anything else. And so even in First and Second Kings, this is actually the most common way the Bible talks about sin, is as idolatry. And when you read, like, say, if you go to the Old Testament and you're reading First and Second Kings, those of you reading through the Bible, um, in a year, watch out for this pattern, because you'll find this pattern that said they did, that the kings, many of the kings, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And what is it that they do primarily that the Bible sees as evil? They did not tear down the high places. Instead, they built more. They built more idols, and they worshipped other gods. That's a big problem in the Bible, okay? And so then sin... As a force. And as I said, that's what we're going to talk about. This idea, the problem I think we see uh, that we're going to be talking about this morning is the idea that sin is enslaving. Sin is enslaving. And the Bible, again, I'm not going to like break out every passage that talks about sin being enslaving because we'd be here for a really long time. All right? If you really want to, if you really want to go, go down that road, just trust me, this is like one of the most common ways the Bible talks about sin holding on to you and me. It is enslaving. Jesus says uh, in John chapter 8, verse 34, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. Right? And we can see this like really clearly in things like addictions. Think about our habits. Right? It's, it's a lot harder to break a bad habit than it is to, to stop doing a good habit, isn't it? <laughs> like, we know that, right? You can think about your habits, all of those things. Sin 
enslaves us. We get caught up in it. It binds us into chains. I mean, do you guys, I mean, is that, am I just like the only one of you? Like, do, do you feel that? Do you understand? Like, I don't think I need to explain that too much. That feeling sometimes of being held back by something. Like, I want to be a better person, but I find myself continually doing the same things over and over. The repeated destructive behaviors that sin is an enslaved, a slave master. And once it gets a hold of you, like some sort of like noxious weed, right? Like I, I was thinking about this actually yesterday. We went on a walk um, over in Ross Cahill, right? And anytime you get near a lake in Ireland, it starts talking about like, check your boat for zebra mussels. Why does it say that? Because the zebra mussel is an invasive species that once it gets hold in a place, it will never let go. Right? They just they will spread, they will destroy all the native species. And so like Loch Korob is like being decimated, like the, the snail population and, and things is being decimated by the zebra mussel. That's true. You can, yeah, anyway, like this. Uh, there's also a, 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 there's a weed as well that's like that's gotten into the lake that they're that they like will never get it back out. Um, I was talking to a guy from Inland Fisheries once, he was telling me this. Um, so, so anyway. All I have to say, sin is like that. It's enslaving. It, it gets its you know, fingers in and it won't let go. It entangles, it ensnares, and it holds us. It binds us in chains so that we find ourselves in slavery to it. Paul talks about this in Romans 7, right? He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I, I catch myself doing it all the time. Enslavement to sin. This is the problem. This is one of the big problems. That sin is a force. In 1 Peter, sorry, actually, let's just start in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 4, we find Cain having killed, uh, you know, is like, is he going to kill Abel? What's going to happen? Right? And, and God actually visits Cain. And he says to Cain, be careful. Be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is to have you. Is for you. Guys, that right there, I think, is one of the best pictures of sin. Right there on, like, what, page three of the Bible or something like that. Why don't I just, why don't we just read it? I hadn't planned on it, but uh, I just want to turn it there. Because, like I said, I think it's a really powerful way of understanding sin and what sin does. Where's it at? <laughs> Sorry, verse 7. I'll start at verse 6. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain? Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. That's Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Six and seven is what I read. So we get this idea that sin is a force. And we are slaves to sin. Or you could think about in 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter says that Satan is like a lion. And not the Narnia Aslan kind of lion. No, he says this lion seeks to devour you. That, that is that hidden thing behind sin. That is what sin desires to do. That is what evil, the forces of evil, desire to do. And you and I are in bondage to that sin. But here's the problem. Try as we might, as many New Year's resolutions as we want to make, we aren't able to stop sinning. It is sad. Yeah. Yeah. We aren't able to stop sinning. Instead, we find ourselves on repeat doing those things we don't want to do. We're in need of deliverance. And I think, I think we feel this. I think our world feels this. It's not just us. I think our, our world feels this. We long for freedom, for true freedom. We don't want to be living enslaved to sin, but the reality is because we long for freedom. Many of us, I think, 
I think a lot of us come to church, right? A lot of us. Maybe that's not true. I don't know. You know yourself. Some of us probably come to church. And we want to be a good person. We want to do the right things. We want to follow Jesus. But we know we aren't. And so maybe we put on an act to make, make ourselves feel like we're, we're doing better than we are. Let me just tell you, for somebody who stands up here and talks, that's a temptation. And I don't, I don't ever want to succumb to that. I don't want to be living as a fake person or as like, you know, a, a, double, you know, a double personality or, or something like that. And I don't want you guys to ever feel that pressure. Okay, just this is a side note. I don't want you to ever feel that pressure. Like when you come to church, you have to pretend to be somebody else. Because we're all looking for the same thing. We're all longing for the same thing. We're all striving for the same thing. Freedom. And yet we all on our own fail all the time at reaching that freedom. And even there, once we've come to Jesus, once we've accepted Jesus, again, like I said, if Romans 7 is any indication, like, look, you know, we're all the same in this and that we fail sometimes to live free. That maybe we've been set free, but we fail to live free. Earlier in the, earlier in the week, uh, Ola and I met, um, and he said something that stuck with me, and I told him I was going to steal this from him, and I told him I was going to use it, but I will give him credit, because it, was, it, was, it just it struck me. He said, living a fake life is expensive. There's a metaphor for you to sit with. I love it. I never really thought of it that way. Living a fake life is expensive. And I think that's the reality for many of us is that we go along our lives in bondage to sin, but we try and live as if we're free, trying to do it on our own, trying to work hard to make people even think that we're free. Maybe, you know, maybe you're like the, the type of person, you know, for this person, I put on this face and I show them this thing. It's expensive because it takes so much time. It takes so much effort. We have to remember who we are around this person and who we are around that person and all this. And we long for freedom. Because we know how expensive it is to try and put on an image, to try and put forward this fake person. And so what we read is that like, we long for freedom, but God hears the cries of his people. And this is what I want you to understand. God hears the cries of his people. In the Exodus story, we read this in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. Years passed. And the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. Now, let's just remember. We're going to come back to this. Remember, when this says that uh, God remembered his covenant promise, do you think God forgot? <laughs> like, I actually saw a meme about this. Somebody, somebody pointed out where it said, like, you know, God remembered or something. It was like, God can forget. Sit with that for a while. Something like that. And, and, you know, and somebody was like, oh, never mind, God us. You know, like, no, like, that's not what it's saying. It's not saying, like, somehow God was like, jeez, oh, I remember making some sort of... I remember saying something to somebody at one point about something. Oh, yeah, these people over here that were enslaved. That's right. I made a covenant promise to them. That's not it. Okay? When the Bible uses this word remember, it means so much more than just like, like being reminded of something or, or something like that. Right? So if you think about it, like maybe you pray and, and, and maybe, you know, you, you might pray something like, you know, God, I, j I just pray that you would, you would remember, you would remember my, my family in this time. Do we think that God has forgot? Or are we asking God to act? When it says that God remembered, it's God's making a decision to act. That's the idea behind this, is that God is making a decision to act. He remembered his covenant promise. He was going to act on his covenant promise to Abraham and to Isaac. He looked down on the people of Israel and he knew it was time to act. God hears the cries of his people and he acts. Coming back to Jesus and John. I read to you that in John 8, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. But he goes on to say, a slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. You are free indeed. 
God hears the cries of his people and he acts. And I think that is important within this story for us to see. That as we begin to, to make our way then to Jesus' death, and as, as we're reading here, as we're walking through this, that we see that God remembered his people and that he acts and that he has come to set you and me free. Free from the bondage of sin. Free from slavery. One of the things that I, I, I've been reading is, is that we don't tend to focus on this metaphor often in, in the West. That this idea of a, a new exodus is not one we talk a lot about in churches. But you know who really resonated with this as I was reading? Enslaved peoples. Enslaved people groups who were following Jesus. One of the things that it pointed out to is that this theme of the Exodus was a huge part of, of the civil rights movement in the United States. It was a huge comfort to people who were living in slavery, in chattel slavery, in the, early, er, in the 19th century in America. That they latched onto this idea and said there will be freedom from bondage, not just to sin, but Jesus is going to come and set all things right, set all things, set, make us free. And I think we need to start to see this, that maybe our eyes have been blinded because we live a pretty privileged life. But when we start to see the implications of this, I think when we see how it sets people free from slavery to sin, how it up overturns you know, the systems of injustice in our world, that the gospel is good news to every piece of our world. This is huge, guys. This has cosmic significance. This isn't just individual significance for you and me. This is cosmic significance. Jesus has come and set us free. So let's look at this. So what is the, what is the solution? Right? One of the reasons that we started out with this metaphor is because this is the one that Jesus primarily uses. And what better way to start with talking about Jesus' death than how Jesus talks about his death? Right? You know? Like, it seems like a pretty good place to start. And this is the theme that Jesus chooses to use. In all four Gospels, Jesus places his death specifically within a Passover setting. Within this story of the Passover. And again, like I, like, like I mentioned earlier, this, this story of the Passover was of primary importance to the people of Israel because it reminded them, it brought them into the story of who they were. It was an identity moment, a freedom moment. We follow Yahweh because he has set us free and we have made a covenant with him. And every year they had a big festival and they remembered that covenant. And they, they celebrated that freedom from tyranny, from slavery, from oppression. And Jesus connects his death with that event. In Mark chapter 14, verse 12, here's what we read. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, this is Passover, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? And as we skip down to verse 17, we read that in the evening, Jesus arrived with the twelve. As they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one, in turn, uh, each one asked in turn, am I the one? He replied, it is the one of the twelve who is eating from the bowl with me. For the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to the disciples saying, Take it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks for it. He gave it to them and he, they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Then they sang a hymn and went out from the Mount of Olives. Jesus connects his death with the Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb. 
And I think that's one of those things. We've probably heard that before, like Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've heard all these things about like Jesus being the Lamb, all this kind of stuff. But this idea of Jesus as our Passover Lamb only makes sense within the context of the larger story. Right? A people oppressed who God came and miraculously set free through a powerful work of God. And like the Passover lamb, Jesus dies instead of the people. He is the blood over the doorposts. Right? We read about that, right? How they took the blood and they put it over the doorposts and then the, and then the, the angel came and struck, struck people down dead. I mean, it's like, it's intense, right? It is intense. But it was those who chose to do what God had instructed, those who chose to be part of God's people, those who chose to, to, to follow his instructions that were saved. The blood went over the doorposts and the angel passed over those homes. Jesus died instead of the people. His blood is the one over our door, doorposts. <laughs> so that we are set free. So what did this accomplish? It accomplished two things, mainly. Rescue from death and deliverance from slavery. All right, and so we're just going to really briefly hit those. So I already said, rescue from death, that, that the night the angel passed over the homes of the Israelites. Passover involved the death of a lamb, and the smearing of the lamb's blood over the door, and the blood protected the people from God's wrath. Now in this sense, if you know the story, then you know God's wrath is actually a righteous one. These were an oppressed people, horribly beaten, mistreated in every single way, taken advantage of, and God decided to judge that. And rightly so. And so the blood protected the people from God's wrath and liberated the people of Israel. And so if this is what the Passover story is about, and Jesus connects his death to the Passover story, then I think we could say a very similar thing then about what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross. Are you with me? Okay. <laughs> I know this is like heavy stuff. Like, it, it is heavy. But if this is what Passover was about, then this is what Jesus was meaning by connecting his death to Passover. That you and I, Jesus says, when we take communion, like we're going to take here in, in a few minutes, that when we take the blood, when we take the, the bread, or the juice and the bread, it's like smearing the door. The, it's, it's almost a way in which we participate in it. It's like we're smearing the blood to protect us from the judgment of God against the oppressive, violent leaders of the world, of the evil in this world. Shouldn't have even looked at my notes. It's one of those where sometimes your notes confuse you more than actually than when you're trying to say, <laughs> I need to be a better writer. Um, no, here, here's what I'm saying. That when we participate in this, it is more than just a skit, right? Communion does not save you, right? Okay, we, we know that. We're saved by the, by the grace of Jesus. And I think this metaphor makes that clear. But what I'm saying is that in the act of communion, it's as if we're reenacting that moment over and over, that saving moment over and over, that we are participating in it. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense more. That it's, a, it's in it. In a sense, we get to participate weekly in that event, remembering that event. Remembering that Jesus' blood was like, was like the blood over the doorpost. But equally so, we find that in, within the story, a deliverance from slavery. Because what happened in the story? We, we read it earlier, right? What happened in the story? After all that happened, Pharaoh screams, just get out of here. I don't ever want to see you again. Now, of course, he changes his mind, but that's, the, you know, I don't ever want to see you again. Just leave. Leave as quickly as you can. 
Get your stuff and get out. And that's what they do. Right? That's why the bread has no yeast in it. That's why like, they were in a hurry. They had to get out of town. And that's exactly what they did. They were set free. They were delivered from slavery. And not only that, but then we find when Pharaoh decides, you know what, change my mind. I actually want him back. And he tries to catch them. What happens? We have this moment at the Red Sea, right? Where Moses holds up his hands and the sea parts and the people pass, it says, on dry land. And when they get to the other side and Moses puts his arms back down, the sea comes crashing back down over the systemic evil that had oppressed the Israelites for 430 years. Deliverance from slavery. And so what we find in the Passover story and when we read the scriptures is that Jesus too came to lead a new exodus. This is actually one of the really interesting themes we're not going to take time to walk through this morning in Matthew. is this idea of Jesus as a new and better Moses did a sermon series on that a long time ago. You can go back and, and, and look at that. But Jesus came to lead a new exodus and to break the power of sin over us and set us free. Now, is this all that Jesus' blood accomplishes? No, because then it would just be a one-week series. <laughs> so just hear, hear me when I say, this is not the complete picture, but this is an important piece an important portrait of whatever we're calling the series. Portrait of a revolution. There we go. Right? This is an important piece that I think we cannot miss. We cannot miss. Because it begins here. Jesus' blood absorbs the judgment of God against sin, and against systemic violence. Jesus' death saves us and liberates us from sin. But I don't want to just keep it in, the, in, the, in, in just purely the, the spiritual realm of like just sin, right? Because I've been saying systemic sin. We live in a broken world, don't we? Where there's a whole lot of sin, <laughs> There is a whole lot of things that are not the way that they should be. Anyway, I think about many of the prayer requests that we just prayed for. We live in a world that is still not the way it's supposed to be. There is still brokenness. There is still stuff that is wrong in our world, right? And Jesus says, truly, I will not drink again until the day I drink it in the kingdom, new in the kingdom of God. There is a kingdom that is here but is not yet. There is a kingdom that will come and will set all things right. There will be a full restoration of the world, right? The Bible does not start in Genesis chapter 3 with sin. The Bible starts with the garden where things are good and things are right and things are perfect. And the end of the story then is also where Jesus returns and he sets all things right. Not just sort of like me doing bad things, but he sets all things right. All the evils of this world will be judged. All the things of this world that are not right will be set right. All of those things, we cry out for justice. We say, this is wrong. Jesus will set right. Guys, you see how this is good news? This is good news. And in the meantime, then, Jesus liberates us to be his followers. He liberates us. He saves us from our own sins. And he creates a new covenant community that we get to be a part of, right? That kingdom of God. We get to be a part of it. And so, here's the thing. In Christ, you're free. You're free. I get chills thinking about that. Like all that rubbish that we are so tempted to chase. What this picture of the Bible tells us, this picture in the Bible of what Jesus has accomplished, is that we're free. We've been set free to live as free people, free from slavery to sin. We no longer need to be held in the chains of the destructive powers of evil. Sure, we'll still, like, look, they're still there. 
We still live in a broken world. But you and I can live no longer slaves to those things, realizing that is not our destiny. That is not the end. But that there is something else. Not only am I free, but I've been made a part of the people of God in covenant relationship with him. The church is a beautiful thing. Because we haven't been set free just to live isolated on our own, but we've been given a family, a community, a covenant people, a kingdom of God to be a part of. And that's incredible. Guys, God breaks our chains. And maybe, maybe you're still sitting there like holding on to stuff. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel like you are just still, you know what, I've said I'm going to follow God, but I'm still just bound up in the chains and the slavery to sin. Look, I don't think we're ever going to hit moral perfection, okay, in this world. Like, all right, I don't think we're ever going to get there where we just stop sinning, okay? So hear me out. But the power of sin in our lives, God can break it. God wants to break it. Guys, that's what I believe. I believe that God wants to break the power of sin in your life, in my life. God wants to work in the world. Because I believe that God wants to break your chains and to free you. And I'm not finished with my sermon or anything like that, but I just feel like I, I just want to pray for you guys really quick. I'm going to pray for me. I want to pray for our church. Father in heaven, God, I just pray that you would break our chains. God, so many of us are just tied up, caught up in sin. Break us free, Lord. Break us free to live free, to experience the freedom of life with you. God, the life you created us for. Father, please break our chains. May your spirit break our chains, set us free. Because of Jesus, in Jesus, through Jesus, God. Amen. And so I do want to just talk quickly as we kind of come to, come to the last little bit of the sermon here. As if, if our chains have been broken, if God has come to free us, if Jesus sets us free in him, how do we live free? How do we live free? And I think one of the primary things that we see in the Bible is that the, that the way we live free is by participating in the new creation, by being a part of what God is doing. Maybe put another way that on one hand sounds maybe palatable to our culture, but Obviously, I don't quite mean exactly the same thing as this. Be who you were created to be. Did that? Yeah. There we go. Nope. Yeah. Be who you were created to be. That's how you live free. You see, when we talk about sin as law-breaking, it's dehumanizing. Sin is dehumanizing. Because when God created humanity, he created the world without sin. He created the world in perfect alignment with him. He created Adam and Eve to live in a way that they were created, to live as true humans. And obviously by Genesis 3, they've messed it up. But you and I were created to live in alignment with God. That's who we were created to be. That's where we find joy. That's where we find peace. That's where we find all we've been longing for, where all of our relationships are set right. And I know I say this a lot in church, but sin destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship with ourselves. It destroys our relationship with other people. It destroys our relationship even to the created world. And God, through his victory on the cross... brings peace and restoration to all of those relationships. That is who we were created to be. That is what we were created for. 
And so all of these things, it's not like, oh, just rule breaking, eh, whatever, you know, like I'm rebellious, I break rules, whatever. It's like, yeah, but when you do that, you suffer. It's dehumanizing. And so how do we, how do we change how we live? The first thing is this. We say, I want to be who I was created to be. In Romans chapter 6, this is a passage that talks, I mean, talks about slavery to sin all over the place. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. For you are no longer you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become a slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Now, I just want to back up in Romans chapter 6 because I skipped a whole passage that I was going to read. And it's kind of important for the end of the sermon. Uh, In Romans chapter 6, before Paul says all of this stuff about how we live, here's what he says. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we, were, we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. When we're talking about this metaphor of being set free, Guys, I think one of the most compelling, one of the most compelling arguments for Christian baptism is, is this metaphor right here. We have been set free from slavery to sin. Jesus has brought us through the waters. And if you want to trace a fun theme through the Bible, look at through the waters, that theme, the idea of, of salvation through water. Okay, but here's, here's the picture. When we put it into the Exodus story, we find you and I incapable of rescuing ourselves. We find God parting the sea and bringing us through it into salvation, into freedom. And guys, I think that's why when, when he's talking about slavery to sin, he paints baptism as this picture of dying with Christ, of being rescued by Christ in Christ. And so there's this way in which when we were baptized, we identify with Christ in his death, that we die to our old selves, we die to slavery, and we rise to freedom. We pass through the waters into freedom. This is what's on offer, guys. This is what is being offered to you and to me. Freedom. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The powers of evil thought that they were going to win. They thought that they could do their worst to Jesus and and they could win. But what we see is that Jesus wins the victory. Now, here's where I finish. I want to come back to that word remembrance. Remembrance in Scripture, as I said, is more than thinking just about past events, but it's seeing yourself as a part of it. Guys, the story of the Exodus is our story too. In Deuteronomy, in fact, um, Moses is giving his final sermon. We went through Deuteronomy, right? Invited to know God, all that kind of stuff. Um, But we find a command to keep the Passover. And one of the interesting things about Deuteronomy is he's talking to people who weren't actually a part of the event, the initial Exodus event. 
right? Because they've all died. They're about to enter into the promised land. Moses is like, you know, Moses and Joshua, like they're pretty much the only ones in Caleb. Like they're like the only ones left. Okay? And he says, he uses this, this phrase, you and we, as if they were there. God invites us to see these events as our story too. He invites us not just to remember something that happened 2,000 years ago, but to actually see ourselves as a part of the story. Jesus is inviting us in baptism to participate in his death, but also in communion every single week to participate in his death. But rather than actually dying on a cross <laughs> every single week or something, he asks us to take the bread or the cracker and the juice and to see ourselves in the story. To remember. As Paul says, to yeah, do this in remembrance of me, quoting Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's not just like, hey, remember what happened a long time ago. But to see ourselves in the story. And so every week, we remember Christ's death, and we participate in it. We see ourselves once again, renewing our covenant with God, remembering our freedom, and once again, committing ourselves and remembering that we have died to sin. And so here's where I want to finish. I want to go back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 15. So they've passed through the sea. They're on the other side. They have been set free from these forces of evil that have oppressed them. And Moses' sister Miriam sings this song. And here's what she says. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. We're about to take communion. And then we're going to sing some more songs. And I want us to remember that. That he has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. As she's singing that song, she's talking about literal horses and riders. <laughs> but she's singing about a victorious freedom. And Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, has hurled the horse and the rider of evil into the sea and set us free. He has broken our chains. Let's pray.